We've done it. We have reached the last episode of season one of Movie Mindset, but certainly not the end of Movie Mindset. Mm-hmm. Hessa, we've done American movies, which is obviously USA number one. Yeah. We featured a British director. Mm-hmm. We featured an Italian director. We featured a Japanese director. But now we finally just right in at the deadline. We've got to talk about a French director. We got to talk about the nation of France. And uh, what I th- what I regard as my favorite French guy, my favorite French filmmaker, and of course we're uh, that is the filmmaker Jean Pierre Melville. Mm-hmm. And the two movies today we were talking about are Army of Shadows from 1969 and Le Cirque Rouge from 1970. Basically, like I would describe Melville's movies as being sort of Frenchified n- noir, like to, borrowing from the noir and gangster movies of America of an early generation. But making it Frenchifying it by about you know ten to twenty percent, but just like and also having this sort of journalistic approach to portraying in methodical and grim details the specifics of being a really cool arch criminal. Yeah, it's like I think I would describe um, Melville as like halfway between John Huston or John Ford and. You know, those old French serials like Les Vampires or yes. like Fantomas kind of. Well, especially in these two movies or like the, the films he made um, in color. What I find so astonishing about them is that from like the first frame and every moment of the, of the movie, they have this almost documentary like quality of immediacy yeah. and reality. If you're just thrown into the world with these characters and like every little detail is is rendered with a real... A journalist's eye, kind of similar to Battle of Algiers. Yeah, or Z or something. Yeah, exactly. But at the same time, in his color palette, in the way he arranges like uh, his shots and just like the rhythm and feel of his movies, they manage to be at the same time totally authentically realistic, but also take on a totally dreamlike quality. Extremely Spartan and almost like Bressonian. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, he I another another trademark of Melville is his very Spartan use of dialogue. Yeah. Like he's not afraid to have like well as we'll talk about in Le Cirque Rouge, a half an hour sequence with absolutely no dialogue whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I, I I think it's like the the deliberateness of and it's not like his movies are like are, are glacially paced or anything like that. No, they're very accessible. Like I think this this is really He's a great place to start if you want to get into foreign movies. I oh think. my god, yeah! And like I said, they're not they're not slow, mm-hmm. but in really forcing you, the viewer, to take in the not the just the behaviors of his character. It really kind of a it, it centers a kind of psychological interiority, and it sort of you, you you have to question like what they are feeling and observe these characters in their their tasks and and the things they do, and. You know, he's known mostly as a crime, uh, a gangster crime filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But, you know, look, I want to talk about his name, Jean-Pierre Melville. He was, of course, born Jean-Pierre Grumbach. Um, he was the uh, child of 
Alsatian Jews, born in 1917 in Paris. He joined the Communist Party in 1937, but left it in 1939 over the Hitler-Stalin pact. After France was taken over by the Nazis in World War II, he was evacuated from Dunkirk as a soldier in the French army. Uh, he then, after making it to England, he went back to France and joined the French resistance and, you know, fought in the war. His, uh, his brother was killed, like, currying money to de Gaulle across the Pyrenees. He was killed by his guide. Didn't even know his brother was dead until after the war. But in, as a French resistance fighter, he adopted the nom de guerre, Jean-Pierre Melville, after his favorite author. So sick. <laughs> the, the number one guy, the greatest author of all time, Herman motherfucking Melville. And I, I, I think that's telling because I, I, in both of these movies, I think there is a distinct Melvillian sense that informs all his work. And by that, I mean his movies exist in a kind of a totally amoral universe. Not an immoral one, but an amoral universe in which the characters and their actions are not really judged by any kind of like godlike director or writer. It's just they are simply presented. And his, his focus on the psychology... And I guess ethics of the criminal underclass or like the, the people, people who have given themselves over to a totally criminal lifestyle, mm -hmm. I, I think becomes sort of, um, I think it becomes like, it's not so much about the specifics of being a criminal. I think they just stand in as a larger metaphor for like the human existential condition in that like we are all born with only one assurance that we will die. Mm -hmm. And we're immediately thrown into uh, things happening to us and choices that we don't really make on our own but each choice we make uh just presents a number of different possible life or death outcomes yeah and 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 the the mindset of being a, a a gangster or doing a crime is such that one of loneliness paranoia but more importantly that like everyone around you everyone you do a crime with is the one that's going to put you in or you're going to do the same to them because like everybody has something over everyone else and i think as all his movies like they're Melvillian and also in the sense that they start out about a protagonist or, you know, there's the job there. was what seems to be the main character, but as they progress, they take on a sort of universal quality. Yeah. Like the, you, you like the main character will go away and you'll begin following other characters as they're pulled into the gravity of this criminal conspiracy. It like the, 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 the crime itself becomes like uh, the Pequod and Moby Dick. It becomes a, a moving and universal consciousness of the, the people inside of it, enthralled to it. Yeah. It's a circle of people. Oh, yeah. If, if there was a color to that circle, I don't know, it might be red. <laughs> to, to, to explicate that, let's talk about Le Cirque Rouge. Il n'y a pas d'innocent. Les hommes sont coupables. Viennent au monde innocent, mais ça ne dure pas. Tu es le seul à qui j'oserais proposer une affaire. Classique sur sans risque, si elle est bien faite. It begins with what I believe is a totally made-up quote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's completely made-up. <laughs> the Melville attributes to Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. And it says here, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, drew a circle with a piece of red chalk and said, when men, even unknowingly, are to meet one day, whatever may befall each, whatever their diverging paths, on the said day, they will inevitably come together in the red circle. Welcome, welcome to the red circle, gang, everybody. Once you're in that red circle, you're mm -hmm. on the fucking beam, man. Yeah. That, that is that is the goal for, for everyone in this life. Is just 
Find some other guys and get in that red circle. Mm-hmm. The winner is circle, baby. Get your homies. Meet me in the red circle. <laughs> <laughs> I should have never smoked that shit now in the red circle. <laughs> and oh. the first the first image we see after that quote is of a red stoplight. Ah, yes. a, a car flying through it. Well, here's another thing I want to talk about. Uh, Le, Le Cirque Rouge uh, begins with a, uh, a man in a car being taken to a train station. Mm-hmm. There are so many moments in Melville's movies. They often begin or end with people in transit. Yeah. People being ferried about to some uncertain, but certainly, but almost positively doomed fate. Yeah. In a car. Uh, they're like, you know, often they're being shepherded to a doomed fate. They're uh, escaping from prison, being sent to prison, but they're always being ferried in a car of some time or taken off the street and stuffed into a car by, you know, mm-hmm. some, some rough killed at a train station. Yeah, rough handed men. Yeah. And I remember in the uh, the Kiyoshi Kurosawa episode, uh, Brendan said that uh, every room in, in Kiyoshi Kurosawa's films are haunted. Every car ride in Melville's movies are, is like crossing the river sticks. Yeah, it's like uh, Luca Bra- or not Luca Brazzi, uh, Clemenza in The yeah, Godfather. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, uh, kills the guy. <laughs> yeah, every every car ride is just oh, is just this Doomed. claustrophobic nightmare. And you know, as we'll talk about in Army of Shadows, and I guess like his own experience in the French Resistance, it's like there, there's a repeated motif and theme of like just the fear of being made to get in a car. Yeah, of just being grabbed off the street or being transferred somewhere, be it prison or a concentration camp. It's just like, but the car is the beginning of your journey to hell. Mm-hmm. And actually, last night I, I watched. Uh, I'm not even going to try to properly pronounce this. Uh, Le deuxième souffle, which is another one of his movies, Lino Ventura. It translates roughly to Second Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, the main character in that movie, another master arch criminal, his signature move is executing people in a moving car. Oh shit! <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a scene where he's even driving, and he reaches around in the back seat and just caps this dude. I haven't seen it in a while, but I think um, Le Samurai. A lot of his kills are like I rem- the one that I specifically remember takes place in a train station, and it's Delon and like one other guy, and they it's the most Melville scene ever because they say like two words to each other, and then someone shoots someone else. It's like yeah, train station cars. The the it's a they're, they're people in passage, but like in that little steel coffin of a car is this kind of uh you're you're in between where you begin and your destination mm-hmm. and I, I think this is it's like this is very melville like to me as well so le cirque rouge this is the movie when i first saw it is like this movie is the epitome of icy cool yeah of, of just like grim methodical but like the cool guys, this is this is this is one of the best team up movies you'll ever come across. It's incredible. It's so sick. You know, like uh, it's a murderer's row. <laughs> the the top three build. Well, okay, like on... yeah, there's the top three. Uh, you've got <laughs> Elaine Delon, who stashed out the whole movie this time, <laughs> not just for one scene. <laughs> uh, the Italian actor Gian Maria Volante, who another communist, yeah, as a Vogel. Uh, Elaine Delon plays. Uh, Elaine Delon in this movie is just like. The coolest dude ever. Yeah. Like, man of few words, but he doesn't need to because you just see him wear a trench coat and smoke a cigarette and you're like, that that dude's a demand. And you know what? I, Jean Maria Volante in this too, this time I was watching it and I was like, you know what? I think if I had to, if I could, 
marry either him or Delon, I'd pick him because I'm pick, like you pick Vogel. Yeah, he, there's he's there's a certain I don't know there's a, a wildness to yes, his eyes. Yes. <laughs> Apparently, him, uh, Volante, and Melville really did not get along while making this movie. But uh, and then Yves Montand as uh, Jensen, the police sniper. Yes. But it's actually like I mean those are the, those are the three guys who come together to do this jewelry heist. But the red circle also encompasses two other guys. And like I said, what like there's the the heist, there's the criminal plan that is set in motion. That like you know the, the, these the three disparate guys, uh, whatever, un, how, however unlikely or circuitous their path, winds up together in this red circle, which is like pulled in by the gravity of the promise of this jewelry heist. Yeah. But there are two other men as well who are also in the red circle. Mm-hmm. There is uh, Inspector Mate, played by Andre Borville, as the cop. The detective who is on their trail, and then also the sort of underworld club owner Santi, uh, who has a, a strict no snitching code that is put yeah. to the test in this movie. But it, it's been this movie basically about like five men, and as I said, the the crime and everything that surrounds it, like I said, is is the Pequod here, and the jewels, of course, the white whale. Yeah, as I said, this movie begins with Vogel in a car. Being shepherded by Mate, he's uh, gets uh, in Marseille. He is um, basically being headed to. He's being taken to Paris on an overnight train to, you know, face, uh, you know, a jury of his peers. Uh, yes, exactly. for some unknown crime. Yeah, we, don't yeah, we know. never find out what he's what he's been arrested for. But you know, he's just taken on a train. He's handcuffed to uh, Mate, um, and then then we meet uh, Corey, and played by Alain Delon. And what I love about this is like. The coolest arch criminal of all time is named Corey. I know the name Corey is so funny. I like, I just think of like so a, a Corey who is like the kind of parody of Luke Perry on The Simpsons, where it's just like, like non-threatening boys magazine. It's so jarring when he's like at Santi's club and he's like, "Yeah, if anyone asks for Corey, I'll be over there." And if I was like the guy at the club, I'd be like, "What? That is not your name, man." Um, Corey will be meet. He is, once again, in transit, getting out of prison. Mm-hmm. He is recently paroled after a five-year bid. And uh, but before, he, before he goes on his last, last minutes in prison, he gets hooked up with a great idea for a job by yeah. one of the prison guards. He's <laughs> just like, look, I know you're getting out, but like you're the only guy I got for this. Yeah. <laughs> and again, it's just like, once again, like the whole, the whole beginnings of this movie, there is just, there is so little dialogue. But it really makes you focus on, like I said, the actions and interiority of the characters. And just like holding a shot without distracting you with any uh, rat-a-tat-tat back and forth. It just, And also, I, I have to stress here, as the movie goes on, how unbelievably sensual and rapturous the images he shows you are. And, and what's so astonishing to me about his style is, like, like I said, in the same way that it is almost documentary-like uh, documentary and how methodical it is. There, like, but he also creates this totally dreamy quality. And if you think about the color palettes, the color palette in Le Cirque Rouge, it's like a feast for the senses, but it doesn't exactly hit you over the head with it either. It's like very gray and blue but and permeated, gray. but like totally like these pops of color that really like hit you like a train when when they come out and, and honestly like the the very sparing use of red in this movie yes. comes up at very very 
it's, you know, like it's only a couple times when it does show up, it's unmistakable. And mm-hmm. it's, but it's never in because like every interior in this movie is blue. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them are blue. Blue or like yellow gold. Yeah, like, like a, a mix of that. Like I said, yeah. it's not like I, I movies that have like a very exaggerated like color to, color style, like you know a Wes Anderson movie or something like that. Yeah, and you know like, that's not any knock on him. But this movie definitely has a very distinct uh, palette to it. But like it's it's so subtle that you almost don't notice it. But once you do, it's just like a fucking like feast, yeah. feast for your senses. And also his use of like ambient noise. Yeah. Because like, in the scenes where he just holds action with no dialogue, it's never silent. You're always hearing like uh, uh, something ticking or the train, uh, the you know the tracks is, of the train as it goes over it. Like, and there's there's very little music, but when it's used, oh yeah, and it's like it's if I'd say like the closest thing to like a mainstream. Um, if you're not familiar with his movies, but you do, you know, dabble in the cinematic arts, it's No Country for Old Men takes a ton from oh, yeah. his style and from this movie, like specifically. I think you're right because there's like there's almost no music in yeah. No Country for Old Men, but like very little dialogue. At the very end, though, yeah, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so look, uh, Vogel breaks out of uh, breaks out of uh, the, he's on he's on a train. And he's hang- they're on a sleeper car, and he's in the, the top bunk. You know, he's like, I got tops. Yeah. <laughs> and Mati is the, uh, you know, the guy, the police inspector escorting him is lower bunk. Uh, Vogel uh, picks his handcuffs to the safety pin. And then, like, in, in one, of the, one of the most baller fucking it's prison so escapes. It's so sick. It's just, so like, cool. He just very quietly, like, undoes his handcuffs, like, unlatches the kind of. Uh, it's like over the course of like seven minutes. Yeah, he's like, oh, undoing. Yeah, it's so long. Yeah. And then just kicks out the window and the train and just jumps out of and a moving yeah, train window. <laughs> like, and what I love about that is how simple but brilliant it is. Yeah. And, so you know, cool. we'll see this in Army of Shadows too. Another thing I love about his crime movies is how practical they are. Yeah. And like, this is like... It's a, it's a process movie. <laughs> yes. This is really good advice for being a criminal. Yeah. And like, when we get to the heist scene in this, obviously like it's... Um, Referencing uh, Rafifi, another absolutely fine, another banger, fucking with an absolute yeah. banger <laughs> of a French gangster movie, and when that that was made a little bit earlier by Jules Dassin. But I think when it came out in France, there was this like controversy, or it was like kind of banned for a short period of time because the authorities thought that the heist scene in it was too realistic. <laughs> they were like, they were like, this is a how-to guide so to sick. crack a safe, so and, fucking and, sick, <laughs> and bypass alarm systems. <laughs> It, it just, but but here's what I mean in terms of good advice, and we'll see this in Army of Shadows again, listeners. Let me stress this: incarceration of any kind is is terrifying. It's yeah, bad. but once they get you to the place that they want you in, it's almost impossible to get away. Yeah, you can do it, but like, here's the thing: your best chance to escape any kind of incarceration is in is when they transfer you, when they in transit of any kind, and we will see that again. In it Army happens of, again in Army of, Army of Shadows. Shadows. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so again, this is this is just good advice. Again, when he when him him running through the woods, there's just something so immediate and like the cold ass French woods and countryside, and the the dragnet they send out to look for him, which is shot like it's a big circle that's he's encircled in you know which may, may be another red circle i mean we don't know <laughs> there's a lot of red circles in this <laughs> in this movie but it, also you get to see um inspector Mathai, 
who is another like great character in this movie. Yeah, his because like he's not, was like he's not cool. He's not he's not he's not he's not cool as fuck like Corey. Mm-hmm. He's not sort of like a wild, wild card. Like, yeah, he has like three Vogel. cats at home that he feeds. Oh, I love, yeah. Oh, yes, uh, a man after my own heart. Well, the, the, the first cat scene comes after maybe my favorite scene in this movie or maybe of all movies ever. But it's all, it, it's as good to me. So like, I, 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 I'll speed things up here. Uh, Vogel escapes from it being transferred to Paris. A manhunt is on in the French countryside. At the same time, uh, Corey is paroled. And here's another... Anytime this scene happens in a movie, I'm I'm not and I'm, I'm pumping my fist like a motherfucker. Yeah. Any scene where a guy gets let out of prison and, and there's they read always the scene where him. they read the receipt yes. for the shit that was in his pockets when he came, they're like, uh, one cigarette case, gold, like yeah. silver, yeah. One watch, platinum. But of course, he does have a few pictures of some fucking bitch who sold some him out. Rod. And this is like it really is like an almost asexual movie. It's very oh, no, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, women are, 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 they show up kind of as, uh, uh, you know, basically just impediments. Yeah. No, or not even impediments, s- just afterthoughts. Yeah. And then the club dancers. Yeah, the club dancers, which are basically might as well be wallpaper. Yeah. That looks like pretty wallpaper. Can we talk about the billiards hall scene? Oh my God, the billiards hall where it's so good. He's, um, well, first he gets out of jail, gets his pictures of his, his broad, and then immediately goes to his old boss's place, steals his money. And, Rico. Yeah, <laughs> Rico. He shows up. Rico is currently uh, living with uh, Corey. With his old squeeze. Mistress <laughs> yeah. or whatever. He had no idea he was going to go to jail this early. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like six or seven in the morning. You hear like a buzz at your door. You look through the peephole and you're like, oh, fuck. fuck. <laughs> that guy I probably sent to prison and I've been fucking his girl over the last yeah. five years while he's been doing a hard time. And he's just like, oh, he's like, oh, hey, Corey, great to see you, man. Yeah, I thought it would be better for both of us if I didn't come visit, you know? And (laughs) and Corey is just so cool that, like, he never sees the girl. Yeah. But he he knows she's there. Yeah. And then he's just like, look, let me hold something. I just got out. And he's like, oh, like, just wait till the morning. I'll I'll go to the bank and get you a check. And he's like, fuck do I want with a check, motherfucker? I just got out of jail. I'm ready to do some crimes, asshole. Yeah. (laughs) So he's like, oh, I've got, you know, a thousand in my safe. And he's like, that's good enough. He makes him open the safe. Again, criminal lesson number two. If you make someone open their safe, as soon as they open it, bat they like do not let them actually reach inside of it. Yes, because if you have a they safe got a gun. full of cash, there's a gun in there. There's for exactly always a gun just in there. This situation. It happens in so many. To live and die in L.A. Another example. Do not, do not fall mm-hmm. for the old. Oh, yeah, I've made him open the safe. This is oh, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait to see what's inside there. <laughs> Bang. <laughs> uh, but also so fucking cool. He takes the money out of the safe. And then just leaves these crumpled up pictures of that bitch in the yeah. safe. He's like, I'll let you keep those. Yeah. So then, like, he goes to the billiards hall to hang out. And there is, I think when I first saw this movie, like, this was the moment where, like, I knew I was loving what I was seeing. But, like, but, but this moment really kicked it into another level for me. The perfectly framed bird's eye shot of the billiards table. Because, like, he chalks the cue with red. And mm-hmm. then it's like it's billiards where there's two white balls and one red ball. Yeah, like snooker or something. Or snooker. Whatever. I, I yeah. forget what kind of what kind of uh, some know, dumb French ball weird game. European bullshit. That's but it, <laughs> it's one red ball and two white balls, and I, I I believe the object is like with each um uh what are you doing you stroke stroke with each stroke of the cue, you have to get all three balls to like 
touch each other and like sort of connect in a very geometric pattern. Yeah. But once again, the, the stark use of that red ball and the other two white balls. Yeah. We're talking. That's a red circle, baby. Mm-hmm. We're talking. But just red the fact circle. that, like you know, it's like the quote: like they take a circuitous route, but eventually mm-hmm. they will connect and join each other in the red. And the circle. red chalk. It's much like yep. the chalk that the Buddha himself used <laughs> to draw the titular red circle. <laughs> so Rico's goons, <laughs> they, they they come for they come for Corey at the billiards hall, and uh, they're like, "Yeah, oh, you come with us." They like strong arm him or whatever. Yeah, but they, they got they've got a gun on him, but then Corey just like brains one of them with a with a pool cue, and then like as his gun is coming around, hits him again. So his gun fires into the head of his other dude. Yeah, he just shoots. So- he, ac- he accidentally kills this dude. Rico needs better goons. <laughs> uh, they suck at their job. They show up like a couple times, and they they totally fumble the bag every single time. But just like like I said, like how how methodical and patient and quiet the setup was before Corey takes out those goons violence in Melville's movies is always it's so like color it comes in little bursts yes, but when exactly. it's there it's like it, it, it happens like like out of nowhere it's like it's 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 just so shocking and brutal and quick mm-hmm. but but like it, it's so effective because he because like I said like uh portraying a, a criminal lifestyle it's like the the violence takes place at the exact same frequency as everything else in the movie. This is just like a constant reality of your life that exists at the same hum of loneliness and paranoia yeah. that stalks you every other minute of your life. Yeah, it's not even like it's the the main attraction of the movie. It's like it's just an an effect of being a criminal in this life, basically. Just these arch villains. <laughs> just every once in a while they gotta kill someone. So Corey kills a kills a thug. And then buys a used car and uh, begins, you know, begins to cross the river sticks. He begins, begins headed towards a little place called the Red Circle. Mm-hmm. So, God, Corey and Vogel coming together in this movie is the my favorite meet cute in movie history. They're so in love with each other; it's crazy. <laughs> it, I, honestly, it reminds me of like anime. It reminds me of like two yes. two characters in like an anime like, yeah. team up. It's like Zoro Zoro and Luffy from uh, One Piece, literally. It's just circumstances compel them. So basically, uh, Vogel. Okay, uh, criminal tip number three. Everyone knows if you're being chased by dogs, you'd like to you go you go across a stream or river. But what do you do? It's cold as shit out, and you're got wearing clothes. Mm-hmm. Vogel uh, like strips down, basically bundles all of his clothes up into a tight little package. And then just tosses it across the river. After then goes through and then gets dressed in dry clothes on the other side. I yeah, that was a really, uh, really sick little awesome touch. Uh, uh, little, little, little tips and tricks, life hacks. And not only Melville's movies are very cold in their color palette, but they are they're also just cold in that they all take place. You know, you see in characters' winter. breath. It's always <laughs> yeah. it's always raining or snowing. It's always very damp and gray out. And I. Yeah, it's this is probably one of the colder scenes that uh, um you know, he Vogel is at this diner like trying the trunks of all these cars so he can escape this dragnet that's closing in on him in the trunk of a stranger's car. So he's trying all the trunks to see if there's one that's unlocked. And lo and behold, Elaine Delon's trunk. And it's very subtle, but like you see him eating lunch and you see the trunk of his car open and yeah. close. And you're like, wait, does, does he know he's in there? Yeah. And then earlier he stopped at a police checkpoint because obviously there's this huge dragnet for the escaped convict, Vogel. Yeah. 
And you know, he's like, "Could you please open the trunk?" And he does. Sure. He's got a, he's got a gun in there. Like he's got two the, guns in he's there. Got two guns in <laughs> <Yeah>. there. <laughs> but you know. He this this is Corey. He plays it off. He cool plays it so cool. As They're just cucumber. in a doctor's bag in there. So, yeah. so this time, like, you're not really sure whether he knows he has an escaped convict who's also armed now with the guns that he has in his trunk. Yeah. When he gets stopped at another checkpoint, once again, we like I, we don't know. Like, he, he could just be like, "Yeah, sure, I'll open your trunk." And there's an escaped convict there. Mm-hmm. But he plays it off so cool and pretends that like he doesn't have the key or the trunk is stuck or something like it's that. It's like a new car, and he's like, um. Hmm? They must have forgotten to give me the key to the trunk. And you're like, that's not true. What's he talking about? So he just plays it cool. And he he goes through the the checkpoint. And just the most beautiful criminal mindset. He pretends he he doesn't have the key. And then drives into a, a field to convince... What I regard is maybe my one of my favorite scenes in any movie ever. Yeah, it's so good. He opens the truck and he, gets, <laughs> he or he just like he, he like he walks away. He parks the car in the field in a, in this like you know beautiful, grim, bleak, <laughs> bleak ass French country yeah. field, mud farm. <laughs> just stands a few away from the cars and just goes, "Okay, you can come out now." Yeah, <laughs> because he he knew the guy. He knew he was in there the whole time. And Vogel just appears. He's got a gun. He's like, "What the fuck's going on?" <laughs> but here, gentlemen. You are now in the red circle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just like the way the way this scene cuts back and forth between the two of them, and it goes from like 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 sort of shot reverse shot of them looking at each other to this kind of like uh, wide widescreen panoramic view of their car in them in, in the middle of this field, mm-hmm. and it's just like they they like they they sort of recognize what's going on, and then um, of course the most important thing to do gotta smoke a cigarette they share a cig they share a cig and it's like my my favorite detail is that um like um vogel is pointing the gun at delon and is at Corey, and it's just like um at Corey's like cool as ice lighting a cig and he's like i mean it's kind of rude i pulled over so you could get some air and then like lights the cig (laughs) and throws Corey or throws vogel the pack of cigarettes and he catches it and then throws him the lighter, but he can't hold the lighter, the cigarettes, and the gun at the same time. <laughs> so he's like holding all three, and then just like puts the gun away and lights the cigarette. But but, but, th- but this is one of the few scenes where you do get a little bit of music. Yeah, and it's so effective. I like. So when I first saw this movie, and then again when I watched it for today, th- this is a truly one of those scenes in movies where like I can't explain it, but like I'm levitating. Yeah, off off my couch or out of my seat when I'm watching this when I'm watching this scene. It's just like. You are now standing in the red circle, the cool guys club. Gentlemen, mm-hmm. you may start your cigarette smoking. <laughs> yes. <laughs> my favorite my favorite part is that like the like the end of the scene, Vogel is like halfway done with his cigarette and he's like, All right, let's let's go to Paris. And then with his lit cigarette still dangling from his mouth, gets back in the trunk of the car. And I'm like, what the fuck are you, da- is psycho? <laughs> Just like, well, I mean, he's still on the lamp. Smoking okay. out the trunk, though. <laughs> so funny. Uh, I, 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 I said, okay, so like that scene puts me through the Stargate. Yeah. But then we get another scene that is just like so much quieter and less cool. Yeah. But for me, it is pure cinema. We, we get a little bit of the um, personal life of Inspector Mate, the cop, who comes home and he's got kitties and he, he has loves three them. beautiful he's got three cats. cats. Yeah. And it's just like, it's just, once again, just observing behavior of this cop who's just like quiet, diligent, and like dedicated to his job above all else. But he yeah. comes home and he's just like, just starts feeding his cats. Mm-hmm. And like, uh, once again, a very blue interior. 
Um, but it's just, I, I can't explain why. It's just this little quiet moment of Mate and just seeing what his personal life is like. Yeah. Which is that like, he doesn't have one. Yeah. He's got his cats. That's it. Yeah. And it's, it's very like, you know, in, it's like the contrast between the criminals are, you know, it's a much more dangerous life, but there is a, an honor. There is an honor amongst thieves in a lot of Melville's movies. And oh, in a lot of them, there is not, but you know, well, it's, all- it's seen as there's no more. You're right in the saying it's amoral in that it's very like, there's no prescriptive, like, you know, it's not like all thieves are evil or all like cops are good or all thieves are good or like, you know, yeah. it's very case by case, and like, you know, even the um the chief, the chief inspector in this movie, general, yeah, yeah, the inspector, like the head of the you know uh, fr- French, you know, in, in, uh, internal affairs inspective inspector division, the guy who smokes the pipe or whatever, yeah, who is like he's a very interesting character because he's sort of like. He takes a um, matai to you know he, he sort of like uh, reads him you know puts puts his ass on notice because like he has puts the screws to him yeah the chief has a very simple very simple philosophy of the law and it's that all men are guilty yeah and I really like that because like the, for portraying outlaws he would adopt a like an alternate ethical universe mm-hmm. but the moral and ethical universe that you know people who are not career criminals live in is just being afraid of the law. Yeah, but you're afraid of the law because everyone is guilty. Like that is the view of the law towards everyone. The law assumes yeah. that all men are guilty, which is something that will be returned to later yeah. in this movie. And in his eyes, but I don't like, think that's necessarily Melville or any like. No, it's like it, just the. It's police. not his point of view. This is just yeah. Yeah, it's like the the chief in this universe is operating from that supposition, and it's like you know, it's kind of the way I see it is that the this other cop Matei is getting slowly convinced of that yes he is but he by the end he is convinced of it but there's like other things from the sides of the criminals that he doesn't know like their friendship and all these like these little beautiful michael, michael man owes a lot yes these movies. Exactly, exactly because like it's like melville like exactly with man is just so laser focused on like men at work yeah and then it's always like that uh, criminals at work and then the people who hunt them at mm-hmm. work. And it is very clear that like there are superficial differences between the two of them, but they're both kind of programmed. They're both kind of the same kind of guys. Yeah. Um, okay. The next thing I want to talk about is like if, if, if Vogel and Corey, see, here's the beauty of being in the red circle. Nothing has to be said between two men of uh, honor and criminal tendencies. Yeah. They just get it. Yeah. They get each other. They found each other and they're just on the same wavelength, which we see beautifully when, as uh, Corey is driving to Paris, uh, Rico's thugs track him down and drive him off the road, Mm -hmm. pull him over and just like walk him into the woods to shoot him. Sorry, boys, you weren't counting on two two gentlemen being in the red circle. Yes. Once again, <laughs> you just Vogel stepped into the red circle. What, Vogel doesn't even know what's going on. He's in the trunk of the car. Yeah. And like, you know, like the goons are just getting ready to, to execute his new friend. But he just gets out of the car and just caps both of them with no hesitation. Not yeah. only caps both of them, but uses two different guns to make it look like they both shot each other. Yeah. <laughs> he just knows exactly what to do. And they, like, it just, they don't need to say, help me, or thanks for that. They're just yeah. like, nods. And there's, yep. yeah, there's an amazing moment of like, um, and this happens a lot in, this happens again in Army of Shadows of like, someone who knows that they're dead, but just has like a kind of taciturn, like neutral 
yep. mood affect about it. <laughs> yeah. Where after the first guy gets shot and Vogel starts like grabs his gun to like point it at the other guy, he the other guy's just standing there like like hands up, like just nodding, <laughs> just like all right, <laughs> let's get this over with. Um, so uh, they they make it to Paris, they hide out uh, for a while, but meanwhile, as I said, Inspector Mackay is being put, uh, you know, he he's getting the screws put to him, too, by the, because, uh, you know, a guy escaped on his watch, yeah, yeah, and, you yeah. know, they're sort of like, and I also like there's an interesting detail and uh, that Mathai is, the, the police chief says, like, uh, Mathai, like, blonde hair, blue eyes, like, that's some Corsican, and I think it's interesting that Mathai is Corsican, which in, in France, of course, like, that's like their that's Sicily. That's the mob, yeah. That's their Sicily. Yeah. Like, almost, like, uh, so much organized crime in France are done by is, is by Corsicans who are, you know, similar to Sicilians, small islands, mm-hmm. or, you know, clannish, <laughs> backwards, tribal, yeah. violent people. Yeah. Uh, scum. <laughs> yeah. Scum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Uh, but so I, I like the idea that Mathai is sort of like an outsider in both worlds because, yeah. like, you know, he's, he's, you know, like blonde hair and blue eyed. He's like, um, so he's sort of like he, not, not, a, not a criminal like his own people, but also not really always kept a little bit at arm's length from like the official French society. Yeah. But I think that's what makes him so good at his job. Absolutely. Now we got to get into the third member of the crew. Mm-hmm. So basically, um, we don't really know the details of what they're planning to do yet, but they know, that we they know they got someone, a job. We know that there's a job that they need to do. The boys start planning this jewelry heist. And I like that. He's like, there's no question that Vogel's in on it too now. Yeah. These guys met like a day or two ago, but and, and Vogel even says like, look, I'm an amateur at this, but you know what? That doesn't matter because he's got heart. Yeah. He's got heart <laughs> and they're in, and they're, they've been in the red circle. So we don't really know why yet, but they know that they'll need a excellent marksman mm-hmm. for this job. And wouldn't you know it, Vogel happens to know a disgraced policeman who's a, cha- who's a crack shot with a rifle played by the great Yves Montand. Hessa, the introduction of his character in this movie is one of the most out of nowhere, terrifying scenes it's like, I've ever seen. Because, okay, Jean-Pierre Melville does something that I, I've i always thought, like, why don't more directors do that? Because there are these types of crabs that just look like giant spiders. And the only difference is that they just move really slowly. But he, like, takes these, like, cr- these horrifying crab crabs. Spider. Crab yeah. spiders. You know. Yeah, yeah. It's something, just like, yeah. it looks like spiders the size of like two fists put together, <laughs> just crawling up Yves Montand's body it's as he's like, like the <laughs> pile of 50 empty alcohol bottles next to his bed. It is so crazy. Cause like it, it comes out of nowhere. They're just like, oh, okay, like, yeah, uh, I know a guy. We'll call him. And he, he is in a bad way when yeah. his phone starts ringing. It is one of the most harrowing and uh, depictions of DTs I've yeah. ever seen. Because, like, basically, he, you know, uh, like, you know, he, he, he left the police department under some cloud of scandal. Yeah, and, he used to be a police officer. He yeah. was, like, their best marksman. And has crawled into a bottle and stayed there <laughs> yes. for the last five years. His, his room is nothing but um, a bed, a pile of empty bottles, this crazy vertical striped blue wallpaper, and... Two Louis Vuitton luggage <laughs> cases. <laughs> when his phone starts ringing and like the shrill violence of hearing, I mean, like shit. I've never had the DTs, but like I've been hungover and had someone ring my doorbell, and it is 
a nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, is yeah. torture. <laughs> so it's like the racket of this phone ringing. He is just in the corner, curled up, basically in a fetal position, just like just covered in sweat. Yeah, sweating fucking bullets. And then you see the door slightly open, and it's just blackness mm-hmm. outside of it. And again, and then very quiet before the phone starts ringing, you just start seeing these giant. Spider crabs, this, walk yeah, these legs just into like into his bedroom, yeah. And I'm just like, wait a second, is this is this real or not? And <laughs> yeah. then they're on him, and he's shaking. And then there are lizards everywhere, and then of course rats. Yeah, there's a scene where he's just shaking, and the snake, a <laughs> snake is like slithering up his bed. <laughs> it is, and it's like, what the fuck? And like, this is the only moment that kind of like breaks. Um, the rigorous realism and sort of uh, you know v- journalistic qualities of this movie. Mm-hmm. Just, but again, it is realistic. He's just show, he's showing you what it's like to go through alcohol withdrawal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but got the last scene with like the his phone is ringing and he's covered in rats, like shaking and screaming. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, and I've like never. I've seen a lot of Melville movies. I can't think of anything like this in any other of. No, them. <laughs> it's like really crazy and like amazing and like weirdly out of character and out of like out of his comfort zone a little bit but like amazing nonetheless <laughs> just imagine being uh the Eve Montan character Jansen here <laughs> like you're experiencing that yeah uh then your phone rings which is even worse than being covered in rats you just sort of like get up and stagger to like pick up the phone you're like sorry sorry I, I, I was in the shower like hey uh you don't know me, Colin. It's a friend of a friend here, Colin. I'm just wondering, <laughs> uh, can I interest you in joining the Red Circle? Sure. Can we meet at midnight? That's <laughs> literally his response, of course. <laughs> and they meet. Uh, now we get the uh, the fifth and final member of Club Red Circle. It's uh, Santi. And Santi is played by Francois Perrier. He's an underworld nightclub owner who, uh, Mathai, is like one of Mathai's, like. Matai did him a favor in the past. And mm-hmm. He was like, look, now I'm coming to collect. And the favor is that he wants him to find out where Santi's best friend, Vogel, is hanging out and where he's holed up. And he's like, look, I know Vogel's on the run. I don't know where he is, but like, you know everyone in the Paris underworld. Eventually, he's going to surface because he needs help mm-hmm. to get out of the country, get fake papers, do, get money or whatever. And when you know, I'll know. And it's here where the movie... And we'll see this even more so in Army of Shadows. It really becomes about this movie is like he's very interested in the psychology of informants. Yeah. And how in the underworld, it's like obviously like the, the code is like it, that, that is like the one unshakable thing. Yeah. No snitching. But at the same time, everyone kind of does. Yeah. Everyone's a snitch. And Santi's whole thing is like, I am who I am. Like, I, even if I knew, I'd never give up a name. Yeah. And he's just saying, like, look, don't take it so personally. Like, I did this thing for you that I'm not holding over you. Now you're going to do a thing for me. Like, this is just an exchange of like how how business gets done here. Well, I think like something in another Melville movie, he in La Samurai, he tries to kind of build the perfect, the perfect criminal in this like samurai, like Spartan, like character who really has truly like nothing except for this business that he's doing. And is like, I don't know, this exploration of like, well, he's got a bird. Yeah, <laughs> he has a bird. Yeah, that's it. I forgot. Um, but it's like him, you know, because the real thing that, you know, everyone has a weak point and it's like whether it's their family or like their friends, their like personal life, something. 
But if you don't have any family, you don't have any friends, you don't have any personal life, then, you know, what, you know, there's nothing, then you can be the perfect criminal. And that's kind of like, I feel like Elaine Delon and um, John, Mar John Maria Volante are kind of like, you know, perfect criminal buddies in this, in that all they have is each other in this world. Yeah, but I mean, like, I mean, it, uh, we'll, we'll see how it ends, but like, I, it just, once again, I return to this idea that like, once you're on the boat, the Pequod here, and and you you invest yourself in a criminal enterprise with your com your criminal comrades. Once you, it's like back to double indemnity. It's like once mm -hmm. someone else knows, uh, that's one that's already too much. It's like everyone now has something over everyone else, and I, I think the idea is that like basically everyone does become an informant. At some well, but point, they like, don't. They become. They end it. Well, no, no. I mean, not in this movie. Yeah, but I'm talking like in in Melville's kind of. A, what what I mean is like using the, the 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 criminal world as a kind of canvas through which to kind of communicate an existential feeling that we all have about ourselves, and yeah. Kind of like and and how we relate to one another, and and of like being vulnerable to other people mm -hmm. about if allowing other people to know too much about you or like uh, know a truth about you, or uh, you know, like everybody, it, it's it's this prisoner's dilemma that we're all cased in right yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. In, in, in this unsure uh, series of catastrophes that leads only to one destination, <laughs> one final, yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, they 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 recruit uh, now recovering alcoholic Yves Montand to be their marksman for this job, and they they set up the fence. And here's another really cool thing I like about Melville's like gangster and heist movies. Is usually the heist happens about halfway through the movie. Because mm -hmm. what I really like about that is like pulling off the job is the easiest thing about being a criminal. Yeah. The hardest part is getting away with it. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's everything that happens after you pull off the perfect heist. Yeah. Uh, the guy who plays the fence in this was, uh, he played Felix in Army of Shadows. We'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> I love his huge black and white Great Dane. Yeah. But also they, so Montan cases the jewelry store that they're going to rob. And again, I love, I love the methodical demonstration of the jewelry store security systems. Yeah. It's so, because it, like, you need to show each detail of that so that when you show how they bypass and, and do the job, it's just like every detail is accounted for. It, it's just like everything makes sense. It's perfect. Yeah, he... Um there's he looks he sees the motion sensors he sees the you know the the closing like iron like barred gates and he sees um he really focuses in on this one key in the wall that is presumably the master key that controls you know it's how to turn off this uh, how to yes. turn off and like open the, the jewelry cases mm -hmm. and he looks at this keyhole and it's shot the exact same way nothing else in the movie is shot like this but it's shot there are two things in the movie that are shot like with full frontal shot and reverse shots. And it's um, Elaine Delon and um, and Vogel like meeting, meeting and Yves Montand seeing the keyhole. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Like, no, Yves Montand and, and that that little hole is like that's his thing. Like that that is his way out. Uh, like. He like it's, it becomes clear in this movie that he takes this job not for the money, yeah, he, but just because like he wants to be useful again. Yeah, <laughs> like, he, he just wants to like do something that matters or be noticed by people at all. He wants to overcome. He he doesn't want to be a a. It's it's very similar to like, um, Dean Martin in Rio Bravo, and yeah, he, he yeah, Montan is kind of like the French Dean Martin in a lot of ways. I feel like 
With um, my rifle, my pony. Yeah, avec, yeah, yeah. Avec moi. Just a a, a rummy, a, a gin-soaked rummy who wants to, you know... Who dries out just to like, uh, yeah, like to help become out. Become a good marksman. A good, it's so real yeah, rough. Become, become a good guy it. again. Yeah. I love the scene of uh, Jansen uh, making his own bullets. Yes. Oh, my God. Which so is then sick. like, again, like he, he shows you this, like this, like, you know, like men at work doing the job, getting every detail right. Mm-hmm. And then explains what, what is actually going on with the bullets, because it's 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 so cool because he uses you see him practicing in the woods and he's using like a very small caliber rifle, like, mm-hmm. like a pop gun, basically. Like yeah. Like 22 at most. And then you see him like, you know, uh, like taking care to like make impress each one of his own bullets, which involves, you know, like, like weighing out the number of grains you're going to put in the shell and then like, uh, like putting it in a crucible, pouring liquid metal into a mold. Yeah. And then later he explains that like, it's a charge of his own devising. That's like extremely soft, a mix of like extremely soft lead and lead antimony and tin. tin, Yeah. Yeah. So, so fucking sick. And then when they get, like, when they get to the actual highest, like, the only reason he's, like, part of his job is that, like, one out of five guys in France could probably make this shot. You know, not from the too long a distance, but it's basically, like, he he, he shoots this, like, incredibly soft uh, lead tin charge directly into this tiny little hole. This tiny so, keyhole. <laughs> this tiny keyhole. So that when the bullet uh, hits it, it like the 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 soft metal forms to the rollers in the lock, and like it's like turning a key. Yeah. Oh, uh, it's so fucking. It's cool. so sick. <laughs> and they like it's so like not to jump ahead to it to the heist, but like they get in this amazing like quiet like amazing setup for this heist. Um, Delon and uh, Vogel kind of like get in there. They subdue the guard. They're like ready to go. But um, the whole room is like covered in motion sensors that they have to turn off yeah. first, and the so they set and also up the, like the the display cases like they don't like they display during daytime all the jewelry in like the, the display cases which double as safes. Yeah, so they don't have to like take each thing and put it in a safe every night. It's just like the the display cases are these like you know locked bulletproof glass like electric. They're controlled by the electrical magnetic switches or whatever. Yeah, and um. It's like amazing, um, you know, Yves Montan gets there, s- opens up his guitar case that has the, the rifle parts like hidden in it, sets up the rifle in a tripod. My favorite thing about this scene is that not only are they not talking, there's no talking, but there are no faces either because yes, they're wearing they're these wearing crazy masks, masks yeah. that are basically like pieces of leather dangling over their faces with like they, sunglasses. I think they got them surplus from the IRA. Like yeah. The criminal swap <laughs> meet or something. It's so fucking cool. And it's like really like just the pure, pure Melville because it's everything is just condensed. Like the faces don't matter. The, the like nothing really matters. Like the words don't matter. Their faces don't matter. It's just their actions. The and yeah, it's just... Yeah, the 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 act the action is the juice. <laughs> he sets up the rifle in this um little tripod, and right before he shoots it, he takes it yes. out of the tripod. And like, and, and Vogel <laughs> yeah. and Corey are like, "What the fuck?" They're, they're, like, like, they're not ready for like, it. What the fuck? And he just takes and then it. like it's like no, he's like he's like I, I know I can make the shot better <laughs> yeah. just freehand. And he like he like he, he sets up like the sight on it perfectly in the tripod, and then right before he like he sort of like quickly removes the rifle from the tripod, 
draws a bead, and like as, as soon as that like little like reticle lines up, he just pop, perfect, perfect shot, and it makes in the hole makes the most satisfying noise you've ever heard, and just like the iron bars like slide open, <laughs> and there there's an amazing moment that's like the cars start in double indemnity where they're looking at the motion sensors and they're not turning off. And they like look at each other and then they like look back and then finally they turn off like on like a 15 second delay. And it's like. (laughs) (laughs) And as um, Delon and Vogel are like packing everything up, taking all the the jewels, Montan pulls out a flask and like smells the alcohol. Yeah, because he's not drinking anymore. (laughs) But he's like, I just did the shot. I'm just going to reward myself. Just a little sniff of whiskey. And he's like, it's like he's testing himself to see if he's, and he's been cured by his shot. And you can just tell he's smiling under his yeah. leather mask. Like, it's like so beautiful. He like closes it and puts it away. Um. So yeah, the heist is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Flawless. Flawless flawless execution of one of the greatest. They still like, they steal like $200 million or francs rather yeah. in, in jewelry, <laughs> which is a lot. Mm-hmm. Um. But once again, Fencing the goods and then getting away with it, and like actually like converting it into money is the hardest fucking thing. Because mm-hmm. as we see, Rico, the guy from the beginning, has like already dropped a dime because like the prison guard, like he puts the screws to the prison guard because like that was supposed to be his job, and like sends an anonymous letter to the police. Like, mm-hmm. uh, he sends an anonymous letter to the police. Um, uh, oh yeah, and so like the guy who they're originally supposed to be fencing the goods to. Rico puts pressure on him and he's yeah. like, I, I can't move these goods. They're too hot. Mm-hmm. So they have to scramble to, to find a new a new fence. And it just so happens that Santi's son has just been arrested by the police for dealing pot. Yeah, which was a fake charge, but it turns out he actually did steal <laughs> yeah. pot, which um, is... And he tries to... The son tries to kill himself in custody by drinking two tubes of aspirin, which I don't think that can... Is that I think actually you need to dangerous? Chase it with vodka or something? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. But um, but once again, Santi was like, "I'm I'm Mister Mister Never Will Tell." Mm-hmm. It's like, well, but yes, that's the <laughs> one. Everyone's pr- got a pressure point. The one weak point. Yeah. And you know, I just like Mate's attitude towards like towards informing, where he's just like, "This is the currency that we all exchange. Like the, the exchange rate is equal for both of us." It's just like it, information is the currency of like the criminal underworld and law enforcement mm-hmm. and like every, and that everyone's got something and it's like look you, you know like it's it's not a matter of honor for you this is just business yeah so of course uh sante sante's like why yes i do know a fence that new fence that we can <laughs> move the goods for you come by his house tonight the house they go to at the end of this movie when they mm-hmm. walk up to it is so cool. It's so, it's so sick. It's so like uh, it's dreamlike. But once again, this is like you have reached the other side of it, the river sticks. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the claims office in Eureka. Yeah. The way it's like a blue, like a blue clear night um, right after the sun has gone down. And like only the lights on the first and floor of this building. Yeah, the, this, the this, orange this, glow. This chateau yeah. are on. And it's just like this. Like It might actually really remind me of a, like a Magritte painting. Yes, yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. No, I think you are right about like the, the putting your trust in the wrong people thing because like the... The real like mistake that Volante makes is trusting Santi and Delon's mistake is trusting Volante because he's like, 
I don't think we should go to Santi. It's like too hot right now. And um, Volante's like, no, 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 it's fine. We've known each other for years. He would never like betray us. And Delon is like, okay, I trust you. And then that ends up being kind of their their undoing. Well, yeah, uh, Corey is like, yeah, like, you just stay here. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. And he's like, all right. But you can see he's sort of like, uh, I don't, I, I, like uh, Vogel is kind of like feels weird about it, even though he's the guy who set it up. Mm-hmm. Corey goes to this like dope ass pad. I mean, it seems like an incredible house that someone who fences stolen goods would live in because yeah. it's, it's, it's sick. And then like, you don't, you don't see the face. You just see his like, he's got this diamond bracelet on. And he shakes hands. Then he sits down and it's Inspector Matai in sunglasses mm-hmm. and, and posing and doing a quite convincing job as yeah. uh, posing as a uh, underworld uh, fence. But before they can like, you know, officially get out the cuffs, <laughs> Vogel just shows up, kicks in the door, and is kicks like, run. The door in. And it, it really mirrors him kicking out the window of the train yeah. because, like, the door just shatter. You hear glass shattering, and he's kicking his way into a room with um, Inspector Matei in and, there. And, Cor- and Corey asks no questions. He just grabs the briefcase yeah, of jewels grabs and books. the briefcase and books it. And then, like, <laughs> yeah. uh, Vogel and Matei are looking at each other for the first time since they were on the train together. And Matei said to him, Why didn't you tell him who I was? And he said, Because if I did, he wouldn't have left. Yeah. <laughs> and it's those are the first words they say to each other yeah, in the entire movie. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's like it's truly it's amazing. And then the three our three intrepid criminals run and are heroically gunned down. Yeah, they all die in a shootout with the Yes. And um the last words of the movie are as the French police, the like dozens and dozens of French police officers like filter into this estate through the gate at the front. The inspector general says to Matei, "It's uh, no all one is men. innocent. Yeah, <laughs> all men he are said, guilty." He says, "All men, all men, Mr. All Matai. Men. <laughs> yeah, like that's it. It's so sick." <sighs> and um, yeah, that's Le Cirque Rouge. And I, one thing I did forget is that there's, um, I think the the moment in this movie that really sums up the whole thing for me is in that um, heist scene, which is like a microcosm of the movie, which is a microcosm of melville's entire career there's a shot that i think is a microcosm of the heist itself where um elaine delon is checking the time and he looks at his watch and there's a close-up on his watch and it's like the most elegant fucking yeah oh my god it's 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 this tiny like rectangle black rectangle with a a black square with no digits on it it just says cartier (laughs) 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 no he like melville is so good at the little like and again, without being ostentatious, the extraneous like details, yes. of, like the objects and, and 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 possessions of his characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, always like the most famous signature for him is the trench coat. Yeah, like the the, the the sort of like the the khaki raincoat. Yeah, with like you know you tie it off and it's just oh god. Yeah, Le Samurai, the most famous example, but it's the same same in this one too. And like yeah, the Cartier watch, just like glancing at it, the the Louis Vuitton trunks that. <laughs> Yves Montan has which is so funny like why does this police mark why does this police officer Rummy have two giant like thousand dollar Louis Vuitton it's because he's because he's French yeah because he's, he's, he's French, French. yeah yeah it's <laughs> very just, French this is just uh <laughs> what can I say like you know just uh five of the coolest French guys ever to be depicted in a movie and you know like I in all his movies like he, He's got respect for the lawman too. Yeah, like they're like all, all the police in his movies are very cool too. Yeah, they're they're not just some dumb uh, some you know 
all, all French cops are beautiful, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not all French cops, hashtag. <laughs> all right. Uh, save for, shall we say, the um, agents of law, enfor- law enforcement that we will see in Army of Shadows. Mm-hmm. All right. Take a little break. Okay, we are back now to talk Army of Shadows. Now, Army of Shadows came out before Le Cirque Rouge, so I'm going in reverse chronological order for this episode for this reason. We just talked about how uh, Le Cirque Rouge is like, it's icy coolness, it's like the perfect gangsters and arch criminals and the, the... the codes of, you know, being in the red circle and then like the, the men on the other side of the law who are tasked with hunting these incredibly cool guys. Mm-hmm. Army of Shadows takes that exact template, but just transposes it to the Nazi occupation of France during World War II. This is World War II as a gangster movie. Je ne puis croire que les histoires dont les témoins se feraient égorger. Mais ces témoins-là ont-ils seulement existé? And what's so, like, what's so devastating about Army of Shadows, and I think why it makes such a good contrast with the Cirque Rouge, is because it is similar in so many ways. But the sum total effect of watching this movie and its characters in the French Resistance is it doesn't give me the same sense of like, goddamn, these motherfuckers are cool. Yeah, <laughs> goddamn, like, I, yeah, like, I'm, I'm, I'm loving these cool arch criminals. Because here's the thing. It depicts the French resistance uh, during World War II as like essentially a criminal organization. Like yeah. it, 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 it corresponds to being in a mafia in just about every way. But instead of, you know, killing people and potentially dying yourself or just greed, uh, you know, I would say the characters in this movie uh, are doing maybe the most heroic thing ever, which is yeah. like signing on to a project that will for sure guarantee at the very best your swift execution yeah but more likelihood you being tortured, tortured into to giving up all of the names of your friends who will then be tortured to death themselves <laughs> yeah like it is the grimmest world imaginable it's just talking when i talk about a life ruled by loneliness and like uh just all all encompassing fear but more than anything this is a movie about informing and how snitching is a death sentence. Mm-hmm. But guess what? Being in the French Resistance, even if you don't snitch, also a death sentence. Yeah. Guess what? If you if the Nazis take you in, uh, you will snitch and then be killed. Yeah. There's like it's just there's no way out of this. It's just it is so terrifying and bleak and and like okay, when this movie came out in 1969, it was panned. By those Calle du Cinema dorks. Oh my God! Wait, really? <laughs> because or like, like a lot of French critics like uh, uh, didn't like this movie because it had come out at the time of like the student revolutions and like say you know the sort of Mao Mao Little Red Book inspired like French student movements, and uh, they thought this movie glorified uh, De Gaulle. Well, that's see, I 
I'm kind of glad I don't know history because I'm like, De Gaulle, that's the guy they're trying to kill in Day of the Jackal, yes. right? I'm like, that's, <laughs> that's what I think when I think De Gaulle. <laughs> so I'm like... <laughs> well, and, and this is, uh, despite the fact that Melville himself is, I believe he has a small role in Breathless. Mm-hmm. And as even, the, the philosopher yeah, yeah. Uh, that and, gets interviewed. And gave Godard the idea for doing his like cut-up editing technique that was you know heralded as being so groundbreaking in that movie. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. I think that this is just about one of the most bleak and unromantic portrayals of World War II is that you're ever going to find in a movie. Despite the fact that like, I, like you know, the, the admiration, like the, the heroism of, the, of these characters and like what they do, uh, knowing full well that it will lead to their certain death is uh, really breathtaking. Yeah, it's like, and it there really is a, a contrast between the actors in this movie and like, the choice of actors in Le Cirque Rouge in that, like, they are, like, cool, like, you know, tactical and strategic, like, geniuses who are, like, ice cool about everything, kind of. But, like, the main guy is played by Lino Ventura, who is, like, a stark contrast to Elaine Delon, who looks oh, yeah. like a... a <laughs> yeah, yeah. Looks like a Tom of Finland, like, <laughs> you know, not Tom of Finland, but like a sexy guy. And Lino Ventura just looks like you're like a dad, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like, you know, like uh, Simone Signore, too, like who plays uh, Mathilde. Mathilde. Yeah. Oh, God, Mathilde. My queen. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh, Jesus Christ. R.I.P. We'll get to that. We'll get <laughs> <Yeah>. to Mathilde. <laughs> Who's like basically the greatest French resistance fighter of all time? Yeah, Reese is portrayed in this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only sexy cool guy in this movie is Vincent Cassell's father. Yes, I didn't realize <laughs> it was Vincent Cassell's okay, no, father I, until I looked it up, and I was like, "Oh, like, that makes sense." Wow, this guy really does look a lot like Vincent Cassell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they, they, they look identical. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It's so cool. <laughs> Another fucking Hollywood nepo baby. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, this movie begins with another very cool like opening quote, which is, bad memories, welcome nonetheless, you are my distant youth. Hmm? Then the first shot of this movie is the Arc du Triomphe victory parade. It's the Champs Elysees. Oh, hello, everybody. Oh, wait. Oh, what's that? Bad news? It's the Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> they have just taken over France. It is October 20th, 1942. <laughs> yes. A bad time for Europe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and once again, we are introduced to our main character in transit to incarceration in a Nazi concentration camp. And I love the gendarme guy when they're in like the back of this van and he's just like, you know, it's raining and the gendarme is just like being nice to him. And I think he says, is it one he goes, you're going to the best camp in France, one built by Germans. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like so happy. And you can tell like, um, um, Gerbier is Gerbier. like he's like doesn't want to rain on this guy's parade by being like shut the fuck up he's like oh thanks <laughs> I'm so excited <laughs> basically Gerbier is like a, I think he's like a formerly a former civil engineer who's now like a, like a high up in the French resistance he's yeah like, he, he, he's he's the real deal and uh, another thing that this movie does is it introduces these very um novelistic and sort of almost memoir-like voiceovers from a number of different characters mm-hmm. that like grants you access, like it, it focuses on their mental landscape and interiority. But in a way, as the movie goes on, these kind of like 
becomes emotionally wrenching. Yeah. And I like one of the first things that like as he's brought to like the uh you know the kind of the, the camp commandant is they're like I think it's in in a he gets a voiceover where they're like he's they're reading the file on him and they the file the file on Gerbier is like this cool, aloof, ironic guy must be brought to heel. <laughs> yeah. Treat him well. <laughs> Proceed with caution. <laughs> but they know he's the real deal. So they throw him in a, a like his bunkmates at uh, Camp Nazi, <laughs> Camp Concentration, yeah. are all like nobodies. Yeah. Total. It's they're, like, they're, they're, they're like, they're, they're just bozos who are in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. There's like an idealistic young communist. There's a guy who just like was at a bar and he was like, I don't like these you know vichy traders yeah the, I, I, the communist is like 11 <laughs> like and and there's like a chemist who's like they 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 blocked me up here because i had a test tube can you tell them that i'm just a scientist <laughs> there's you know there's, nerd there's like a catholic school teacher who just dies of like typhoid <laughs> doesn't like, say a word yeah. he's just dying in the corner it's a pretty ragtag group and like mm-hmm. Like, like, like he knows these guys are not really in the cause. Like, they're just, yeah. they're just poor schmucks who got caught up in this dragnet. And there's a cool scene, like, of him walking around the camp and, like, just seeing, like, all the different nationalities of people represented there. Like, they're Poles, uh, Czechs, Gypsies, Jews, and then just people involved in the black market who were just arrested. It's just, like, an all-purpose, just detainment for, like, all enemies of the Third Reich. Yeah. But uh, also keep in mind that this is, 1942 so this is before like the the holocaust really was like in full swing they weren't like yet exporting jews on mass like the the final solution hadn't begun yet and this is a camp in france too so they're like um you know it's not you know it's not poland but it's not good either i like the one thing uh says to uh the young communist comrade who he works in like the camp's power plant and he has an idea for an escape plan. Like he's like, Oh, I can cause a power outage at the fences. And as they say, like his friend, the Catholic school teacher who, uh, who dies, Gerbier says, says to the young comrade, he says, all debts are paid in time, which is really a kind of a, uh, you know, like that's kind of a stand in for the movie itself. All yeah. debts are paid in time. Mm-hmm. And you know, like, what I like about this is, once again, Gerbier uh, narrates a lot of this himself. Like, you know, it's really like most of the dialogue of these characters is in narration rather than in conversation. Yeah. And it gives you this like, yeah, like you, you think the, the, you think these, these are like real people and this is like a memoir. And then, like this is based on a, a book by uh, Joseph Kessel, I think, that is like a semi-fictional account of his time in the French Resistance or yeah. about real French Resistance fighters. So like I like that like you think that like oh like he just met with this young communist dude like they're gonna they're gonna bust out yeah but that's not what happens at all basically the uh, the commandant and the Gestapo just take him out of his bunk and transfer him to like Gestapo headquarters and yeah I think Lyon or Paris I forget Marseille I think is where they are at this no he's in Paris I think yeah they take him to Paris they take him to Paris first. so they 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 transfer him uh, to Paris once again remember the lessons from the first movie. Mm-hmm. You take him to Nazi Gestapo headquarters at some like Lux Hotel in Paris. Holy shit! The scene, like, so they're like, you know, it's not like a prison. They're just in the hallway of this like beautifully yeah. appointed uh, state building, mm-hmm. and him and this other guy. There's like, you know, there's a guard with a machine gun, and it's just him and this other guy sitting on a bench waiting to be like interrogated. Mm-hmm. Holy shit! The scene where he just like he turns to the guy next to him, and they notice that there's only one guard right there. Yeah, he's like. We have, we have to, to take, advantage, we have of to take advantage of this. Yeah. Like I'm gonna make a move, and like you, like you, you do it. But like you run for the door. You run for like you run. 
and like it, it can the tension the tension, the tension is crazy again like no talking and then it goes on and they're like there's a scene where like they're just looking at each other on the bench and you're wondering like is the other guy gonna go for it or not is yeah. he too frozen in fear like is he why is he there you also don't know who yeah. he is or why he's waiting to go in there but like the look on his face is so haunting because he's like terrified but he's like yeah, no you just see like it's it, it holds on his face for like what feels like 10 minutes of just like horror and um and, and it's just like what I, what I love about this so much is like obviously you know <laughs> uh resisting nazi you know the nazi holocaust and uh, you know occupation of your country like again probably one of the most heroic things like any human beings have ever done but just like knowing that like doing it is like everyone's a coward like yeah. just like like we all like to think that in that situation we were like you know i would you know, like I, I would risk being killed just to, like have the opportunity to escape. Yeah. But, like think about it. Would you really yeah. like when you're facing it down? And like, God, there's even a moment towards the end of this movie where he's just like, you know, uh, man is an animal. And like if for one more second of life, you think it's not real. It won't happen to me. Yeah. You know, like you're, I'm still alive now. Still alive now. 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 Yeah. Not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you go along with it because you're just like our, our programming is such that like. Yeah, we we cling to we we cling to life so desperately. Yeah, there's um I I hadn't seen this movie in like a decade maybe, and like there's one scene that I that really has always stuck with me, and is the scene that I think you know the scene yeah. that um yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah which we'll get to later, but it's it's really oh it's so yeah it's so it's, it's fucked. <laughs> like I said, it's, it's we'll get to it, but it, it's existentially devastating. It's, yeah, it's so despairing because I know like I would do I would just. I would run. Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. That way. I would be the guy who runs. Yeah, me too. Okay, so they're, they're staring at each other on the bench. You don't really know what's going to happen. But then like... Aryan Twink with MP40 destroyed yeah, yeah. by... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Nazi guard is just standing there with his gun. Yeah. It's like his face got him in shadow, but he, he looks like one of those like uh, Nazi propaganda posters. Yeah. And then Lino Ventura, who looks like a, I don't know, like a gym teacher or something. Yeah, yeah. He just sort of gets up for a second. He's like, uh, uh, pardon, whatever. And then like the other guy bolts. And in that distraction, once again, the violence in his movies, like how quickly it happens, how, yeah. how shocking it is, but just how like... It just happens like that, but at the same frequency as everything else, he just grabs the guy's knife in his belt, just sticks it in his throat <laughs> yeah. like, in like half a second. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this mad scramble out of the building and he gets away and runs into a barber shop. Yeah. And like, he doesn't know. Like, I mean, this is Paris. So like, you don't know. Uh, and uh, it's a fellow Frenchman, but you don't know. He could rat you out. Like, yeah. You know, just like for any number of reasons and he comes in and he's like shaking sweating he's yeah, like looking outside you can like, hear like, like gunshots and like <laughs> alarms he's going just off like monsieur uh, can i help you and he's like yeah i'd like a shave <laughs> yeah <laughs> he has to sit there and get a shave and there's like this tension well as he's getting a shave and he doesn't know like where he stands with this guy and he just needs to get out of there like asap and like after he gets a shave he like hands the guy money and the guy's like hang on let me bring you change and you don't, he doesn't know, like, is this guy waiting to turn me in? Is that why he wants to keep me here? And um, he, like, grabs his coat and is about to, like, bolt out the door. And the guy is like, hang on, take this coat instead. And gives him a different yeah. color coat. It's a real one. Yeah. <laughs> we, got, we got a real French guy here. Yeah, he, real head. Team Red Circle. Yeah. <laughs> so then he escapes. Cut to Marseille. He's back in the game. Mm -hmm. And he's got one mission. 
smoked that motherfucking informant who sold him out. Yes. And we're, we're introduced to this like young guy wearing a beret. Mm-hmm. And then in more... Another then, twink. No quarter for twinks in this film. <laughs> And uh, we get more voiceover where they're like uh, speaking uh, about his, about the guy we see waiting in this like, you know, town square in Marseille. And they're just like, you know, he began the day thinking he would meet with uh, an some, old friend, an old yeah. friend. And he did. Yeah. And they pretend like the resistance guys pretend to arrest him, shuffle him into a car. Mm-hmm. Back of the car right there. It's motherfucking Gervier waiting for him. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like the absolute panic and terror of how long it takes to kill this guy. Yeah. Because they have to escort him to a safe house. Mm-hmm. By the way, here's another cool detail. Did you notice in the car that they drive in that scene, there's like three of what look like giant scuba tanks on the top of the car? Yeah, I did notice that. That's a real thing. During, during, uh, during the Nazi occupation of France, obviously gasoline is at a premium. Mm-hmm. And they would like basically kind of like uh, jerry-rig cars to run off like uh, things like natural gas or even like a coal or steam. I don't know. It was just like, these excess fuel tanks because fuel was at such a high premium during well, the war. I was like wondering about that. And I was also wondering about the the strange headlights on the cars where they're like, um, you know, basically like black opaque plastic with like little slits in them. And I was wondering like, is that like a wartime thing? Was like, you know, the glass for the headlights too expensive or something? I don't know. Uh, everything was rationed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they have to, they have to escort this poor fuck to like a safe house. And I, my favorite part about that scene is that they're driving and meanwhile, um, it's Gerbier and Felix, right? It's Felix in the, and, um, Buffalo as Buffalo. the yeah, yeah, yeah. Buffalo mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> um but um they're driving there and they're talking about him like he's not there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like he's devastating. Not there. He's yeah. already dead. He's already he dead. You're dead, son. Get buried. <laughs> <laughs> but this is like I feel so I mean again, like you feel horrible for him. I feel even so though, bad for this guy. Yeah. Because he's like he's terrified. Just this cowering little twink. Like, and like look, I feel like look, yeah, like I would snitch. You would snitch. We all fucking would. You'd feel yeah. horrible about it. But then all debts are paid in time. Mm-hmm. So they escort this poor fuck to a safe house. And then they realize they can't just shoot him because the walls are so thin in this fucking tenement that like everyone will hear it. Mm-hmm. And then they're just like, all right, well, uh, they're like, Buffalo's always got a knife. We can, we can, we can kill Wait him with for a knife. Him to come back. Wait for yeah. Buffalo to come back. Like, oh, I don't know when he's going to be here. Like, this could be in like, a couple hours. And then like uh, the other guy, Mask, Another one of the uh, the guy in their cell or whatever is just like, look, I can I can execute a guy with a gun, but like you know, stabbing someone to death, I didn't sign up for this. Mm-hmm. And Xavier very calmly says, like, we're gonna kill him. Like, we have to kill him. And <laughs> they come up with the novel solution of taking a dish towel and a wooden spoon and garroting him with it. Yeah, and like Xavier uh, and other guy just hold him in this chair as they. <laughs> They gag him and then wrap a dish towel around his throat and then use a, like a, like wrap it around a, a wooden a wooden spoon so they can just turn tourniquet it, it yeah just tourniquet like, his throat and you see his eyes bulge out tears going down oh. his face and they're just like they're apologizing to him as they do it they're it's like really fucked up and crazy and <laughs> like um mask starts crying after and it's it's very funny that and the Ma- two, mask says he's like he's like he's like I've never done this before and they're like and Jerby is like. <laughs> Me neither, asshole. <laughs> yeah, neither have we. <laughs> yeah. It's our first time, too. Yeah. And, you know, like, he, he killed that, he stabbed that Nazi in the throat, but that's a little different than, like, coldly executing yeah, someone. strangling someone. Like, so brutal. And um, I, 
I do love that, like, the other Mask and Bison, very grinder names for French Resistance, <laughs> <laughs> French Resistance guys. <laughs> There's a French Resistance cell half a mile away from you. Yeah. Looking. <laughs> uh, Can't host. Also, uh, an- another really nasty and frightening part of this movie is the use of cyanide pills. Yeah. And this is, this is SOP. Mm-hmm. If you're in the resistance, as they say, always carry cyanide pills. And if you're caught, use them. Because mm-hmm. here's the thing. They know that like at some point, everyone's going to get caught. And if you get caught, it's just a matter of time before you give up your network. Yeah. So like, it, like the thing to do is like when you were caught, you were dead. So the only thing you can do is go out on your own terms before they can get any useful information out of you. And torture you. Yeah. And, and to- like, it's like uh, what Robert De Niro says in Ronin. You know, everyone has a limit. Yep. You can't, you can't hold out forever. <laughs> What'd they do? Give me a grasshopper. <laughs> yeah, what's a grasshopper? I think it's one part creme de mess, <laughs> one part. <laughs> yeah, and like, I, I think like in, in, in my reading about, just like, you know, just general, like, reading about the French resistance or any, any resistance movement to the Nazis in World War II. And what I love about the Nazis being the cops in this movie is like, holy shit, are they good at it? Yeah. <laughs> They're, if, if the Germans are good at one thing, it's like uh, tr- surveilling people, tracking them down, and building uh, impenetrable fortresses to torture and execute them inside of. Yeah, it's... Inglorious? <laughs> <laughs> they're way more diligent than French cops are. Let's put it that way. Yeah, like it's um, Inglorious Bastards really takes a lot from this movie, and like um, the the dichotomy between the French cops and the the Germans is seen um, in an early scene where after um, Vincent Castle's dad gets recruited, Jean Francois, the like dashing pilot who's like just looking for action, he's looking for some real sport. Yeah, he needs some juice, and he finds yeah. Um, so he gets recruited and um, I think Felix recruits him, right? Yeah, Felix recruits him. Yeah, and um, his first mission, he's bringing... Um, a radio. Yeah, smuggling a radio to... Um, Mathilde in Paris. Yeah, Mathilde. And Mathilde is... He gets off the train and sees some Gestapo guys in They're the station. They're checking bags. And he's like, oh, fuck. And then um, basically... Such a, such a smooth move. Yeah, gets past them by helping a woman carry one of her kids. So and, it looks like they're a family. Yeah, it looks yeah. like they're just a family. And then right when he passes, he puts the kid down. And then the next... Around the next corner, he runs into some Vichy cops. And um, they're like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's yeah, see your back, are- please. And he's like... Sure, you fucking idiot. He's like, he knows they're not going to fuck. Like, they open his they open suitcase. They're like, oh, what's this? He's like, a radio. And they're like, okay. Yeah. And it's like <laughs> his, his like caution and, uh, you know, like. Is he just like, he's gotten away. Fear. And then he's on, he's on the metro and he just blindly rounds a corner and just steps right into the gendarmes. Yeah. And it's like his, you know, it really portrays the difference between the, 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 John Darms and the fucking Gestapo. Uh, but like, back to what I was saying about the uh, the cyanide pills and how effective they are and why. <laughs> Look, if you're ever going to take up any life and death struggle against a you know a military empire, yeah, I, I, I would like to have I'd like to have a fucking Pez dispenser of cyanide with me at all yeah. times. Because like in these resistance cells, and we see this in Battle of Algiers too, another fucking mm-hmm. fantastic movie. Yeah, it's very much in the same vein. They, they know that everybody is going to give if you have something that you know a name an address whatever you're going to give it up yeah nobody nobody can hold out yeah but like everyone was instructed to like you know if you don't get a chance to swallow the cyanide pill you have to try to hold out 
as long as possible, ideally a couple of days, to give everyone in your cell enough opportunity to know to, pack up to know that you've been arrested and to like 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 erase the network or just like get out of town. Yeah. And also what I really love about this movie is that like as it develops, you realize that like it's not really a plot as such. It's just like a series of ops. Yeah. That all these people go on. It's it's very like a lot of like these World War II movies that have like um, a prison break element to them, like you know, like or like a war element to them, kind of have these weird plot structures. Like I'm thinking of like The Great Escape and yeah. like you know The Dirty Dozen, like just like very strange plots that don't really have anything you can compare them to. And this is kind of similar to those in that way, in that like. You know the the fake out at the beginning where you think he's gonna break out of uh you know the the concentration camp, but he just runs in transit. Le and camp it's like, concentration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, then um and all of their ops are like here's here's another thing that I find fascinating about this movie and and so like so brutal is like I said this this depicts the the French resistance, but like all of their ops like none of the stuff they do is actually really fighting the Nazis. It's about like traveling across borders getting people out of france and back into france it's about smuggling radios and setting up communication networks but most of the actual violence they do is about getting people out of prison and most of the targets of people they kill are other french resistance fighters yeah like all all the all the killings they do are of each other mm -hmm. and once again it's like back like when you enter a criminal enterprise like everyone is on the hook yeah and like it's similar to like like Goodfellas, right? You got your boys, your comrades. You're in the red circle together. It's great. Yeah, you're, yeah. You're resisting the Nazis. <laughs> you're getting money. There, you got bitches. You're fucking Lufthansa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. But your friends are the ones that are going to kill you. Yeah. Or you're going to be ordered to kill one of them at mm-hmm. any given moment, and like everybody understands that, and that's what hangs over you at every given moment. Yeah. Uh. We, we talked a little bit about Vincent Cassell's dad, uh, the handsome guy. And then, like, what I mean, like, in, in the Melville sense for this movie, like, it starts out one way. So, like, similar to Melville's Confidence Man, if you've ever read that, that novel. You, the novel starts out and you think it's about one thing. And then about, like, somewhere in between it, beca- like, somewhere as the book progressive, it becomes a totally different thing. Yeah. And, like, the same with, like, Ishmael. Like, Corey is the Ishmael of Le Cirque Rouge. Gerbier is the Ishmael of Army of Shadows. But once you're on the Pequod, it becomes this kind of, yeah, like I said, a shared universal consciousness in which the members of the crew, you begin to follow them and you begin to gain access to their inner lives and thoughts. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, uh, the, the Vincent Cassell character, we see him visit his brother in Paris who's like a, a, philosopher, a philosopher, an academic. Who a like, cushy, who yeah. lives in this beautiful apartment, but it's like, he stayed out of it. Yeah, he's you can tell because he's like uh, when he first gets recruited, they're like, do you have anyone that you're connected to that, uh, you know, they, the Nazis can get to you through? And he's like, well, I have my brother, but I mean, I'm not going to be telling him what I'm doing. And, and I'm like this because like we, we hear in the voiceover is like he loves his brother, but like, you know, he, like he, they don't like he doesn't they don't he doesn't understand him. Mm-hmm. Like They just like uh, they, he's not a man of action. His brother's a, a, a bookworm kind of. I don't think I like to see with a brother is like in his beautifully appointed study 
uh, he has built, he has constructed an early version of the outdoor dining COVID pods <laughs> yes. that we had here in what New York. What the fuck was up with that? Why well, did because, he do that? It's because there's no heating. Okay. It's because there's no heat in any of these buildings and it's like France in winter. So he just builds this little like, uh, yeah, COVID dining hut. Where they can <laughs> in the middle of his office. Yeah. Yeah. So they can sip wine together. And also right before that, we meet Mathilde for the first time, the queen. Um played by Simone Signore, and she's a French resistant. She's a Parisian housewife. Yeah. Who is, as this movie progresses, probably the, the best operative that the French resistance has. Yeah. Like, she can do anything. She's a mastermind. Anytime a successful op happens, one of the people is like, oh, it was Mathilde's plan. <laughs> like, it's... She's the brains. Mm-hmm. She can, like, she can devise a plan. She can execute a plan. She takes orders as well as she gives them, as, yes, uh, as, as, as Gerbier says. says. Yeah. And uh, I, I talked again about, like, the, the way in which um, the voiceover... You begin to like other characters begin to share their inner thoughts as the movie goes on. And the uh Cassel character, Jean Jean Francois. Jean Francois. Like he goes to see his brother, and as he leaves, he was just like I forget the exact detail, but he says, like, when when the war is over, like I I hope to one day tell him that or share that. Oh, with him. he um actually it's the part where he is um he's rowing his um it's like a dark night and they're Trying to smuggle oh, some yes. people out. The, the head of, of the, 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 yeah, the the boss of the whole resistance. The head of the entire resistance is um in this boat with him, and he's ferrying the boss um to this submarine to take him to London, and um he can't see the guy's face, but he just knows him as Big Boss, which is very Big bo- Kojima. Very Kojima, yeah. <laughs> but he no, all, all the all the all the all the gang in this is very Kojima. Yeah, it's Big Boss. Yeah, Mask Big boss. Buffalo. <laughs> yes, it's um kill Nazi man. Yeah, kill Nazi man. There's um the crazy collar on um Cassell's like jacket that is like leather pilot jacket is very Kojima. Ocelot, kind of Ocelot yeah, style. yeah, yeah. And um, he's rowing this uh, the big boss to the submarine, and he's like, um, "It's the tip of the pyramid and the base of the pyramid in the same boat together." I so interesting mathematics. I'll have to tell uh, Luke about that. And then um, the big boss gets on the submarine, cl- climbs down the ladder, and turns around, and you see once his face gets illuminated, it is Luke. It's his brother, who is the big boss of the resistance. Oh, is it? Wait, yes, it's the brother. Oh, fuck. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, it was his own brother. With the academic dude? Yeah. Fuck, how did I miss that in all the times I've seen this movie? That's the irony Wait, Paul, of the, the whole Paul thing. Maruse? Paul Maurice? Yeah. Fuck, I didn't even realize that. Yeah, he's... um. I was going to say, uh, Luc Jardy. Yes, uh, if you're, Saint Jardy is based in part on the French resistance leader Jean Cavet. Cavet was a French philosopher and lo- lo- logician who specialized in philosophy of mathematics and philosophy of science. He took part in the French resistance within the Liberation Movement and was arrested by the Gestapo on the 17th of February, 1944, and shot on the 4th of April, 1944. And yeah, Gerbier says like the only, the only thing he loves is Luc Jardin mm-hmm. and his books about the philosophy of mathematics. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck, I, how did I miss something that important about the movie? <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> But that's the the great irony of him being like, yeah, my brother's a total bookworm, and then I got to tell him this thing later, and he never finds out that his brother is the boss. Well, that's what I was meaning with like the the voiceover narrations of all these characters, and like it's memoir like mm-hmm. in that they you like you think that you are gaining access to like they're relating events that happened in the past from the present, 
<laughs> what is so devastating about this movie is that they are all dead. Yeah. They never, he never gets to tell his brother. None of this shit is ever fulfilled. They're not looking back in, uh, you know, as a wistful recollection, re- recollection of their time in the resistance. They're all dead. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, once again, all these ops of like moving in and out of France, <laughs> they get out of France by a British submarine mm-hmm. and they're, they, they go, they go to London and it's like the headquarters of the French resistance. Uh, uh, Luc Jardin is, um, gets a medal from De Gaulle who you never see his face. Yeah. Uh, and another classic bit of like movie mindset while they're in London during the blitz, they go to see Gone with the Wind. This is the second movie we've seen where a character has said the war will be over in France once they can see Gone with the Wind. Because oh. Rudger Hauer says the same thing oh, about his wow. mom in Eureka. You're right. Yeah, yeah. No, they said for the French, the war will be over when they can see that great film. Yes. <laughs> second movie where someone's, it's so crazy and specific. Wow. It's really interesting, I think. Uh, I, I like the parts in London where like the blitz is on and there's a scene where Gerbier like sort of goes into this bar where people are dancing and carrying on. And there's these like little moments where he looks at the, the women in this bar and it's returned to later in the, the running scene. Mm-hmm. But it's just like these little glimpses of like a life not lit that, like, yeah. that he has sacrificed everything like love, affection, humanity for Luke, for the cause, for yeah. the resistance. I also really love, uh, Oh, he's, while he's in London, his boy Felix gets grabbed up by the Nazis. Uh, so he has to go back to France. I love the scene where he has to parachute back into France. That's so great. He it's has like, his glasses taped to his face. Yeah, like viewers, imagine like your your most port- portly uncle. And imagine him, if he had to parachute into France <laughs> during World War II. It's like literally what it's, it's like. It's a tiny ass plane. <laughs> There's like flak exploding outside of it. Yeah. But I like early on, like he's, My, he's all bundled up and like the RAF guy... They put on the red light. It's flashing, and he's like, "All right, here we go." He clips him in, and then like he just then like he like he closes the hatch, and he's just like, "They just did that to fake him out because they're like, look, you like you've been as frightened as you're gonna be. That's over. So then when we actually really do it, you won't be as afraid." Yeah, I really like that, and, and like. What I love about this too is like usually right, no, and I love that he's like the funny, the funniest line in the movie. Maybe is right after he's like that. He like opens the hatch a little bit, then closes it, and is like, "All right." You can go back to bed now. <laughs> He's just like, what the fuck? He's like shaking. I, I don't think I've ever seen this in World War II movies. Like, you know, like in all of the, the paratrooping scenes, mm-hmm. like, you know, with Market Garden or something like that and the bridge too far. It's usually like tons of guys jumping out of the back of a plane. But this is a really small plane. And I've never seen this before. It's just a hatch in the very bottom of the plane that they just opened up. And you just sort of like sit there and you're just, Bloop! you just sort of like, yeah, <laughs> just, sort of like, like <laughs> just drop straight out of the bottom <laughs> of this plane. God, that would be fucking scary. It would it's, be, like, I would, it's so cause it, terrifying. Because it's just blackness. Like you're just looking into a black yeah. hole. It's His just, legs just dangling just down. Dangling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> at, at this point, uh, Mathilde has come from Paris and taken over to be his new deputy. They, they put Gerbier up this dope new spot, which is on the estate of a, I love this guy. The Baron. The, the, a Baron who's a royalist <laughs> officer who, who previously, before World War II broke out, tried to stage a overthrow of the French Republic with, <laughs> with a cavalry charge. <laughs> so cool. <laughs> and, okay, so Felix is being held at uh, Gestapo headquarters. And then Jean-Francois, they, like, they never know why, but he writes a letter putting himself 
informing on himself to the Gestapo so that he's like he yeah. he begs out of there like he says like I, I I'm like he basically what what seems like he bitches out on their plan yeah, to break they're gonna him out do of a rescue mission and Gestapo he's like, headquarters sorry I can't I don't he's like I don't have it in me it's the same as the it's really he sends them the same note that uh Burger leaves to break up with Carrie in Sex in the City the post it <laughs> note. It's like, I'm sorry, I can't, don't hate me. It's, <laughs> it's not like, you, yeah. it's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you realize that, and then you're like, why Why would he inform on himself? Yeah. But he puts himself in just so he can help his friend Felix. Yeah. And be in the same cell together. And they've both been, like, tortured halfway fucking to death. Yeah. And then, God, like, the, the breakout scene is just, again, so It's bleak and as devastating. Fuck. It's so bleak. Like, Mathilde, uh, a Buffalo and Mask, like they get Nazi uniforms. Mathilde can speak perfect German. Mm -hmm. And she hatches this brilliant plan. And like they get fake transfer papers and they show up to Gestapo headquarters and like, it's like drive this truck into this like tiny little like culvert or whatever, there's two steel doors and then go into this courtyard and they give the transfer papers. And But first the doctor has to check out Felix before they transfer him to like, you know, the, the, the other Gestapo headquarters. <laughs> They're waiting in this courtyard, smoking cigarettes, just like they're trapped. And then the doctor comes out and is just like, sorry, I can't sign off on this guy's transfer because there's no point. He's already dead. Yeah. And yeah, so they he's... have to get back in the ambulance and just drive and just leave out again. And, and then Jean-Francois and Felix are just in the cell together. Jean-Francois has his cyanide pill and he gives it to Felix. Yeah. He lies to him and he says, I have a couple cyanide yeah, pills. Yeah, no, he only has one. Yeah. <laughs> and he gives it to his friend. Yeah. It's like literally because also Jean-Francois is in there with a fake name. So no one will ever know what happened to him ever. Like truly just disappeared from the face of the earth and no recognition, no heroism, just like missing forever. And I'm sure that the um the 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 brother angle of this of him and Luke's relationship was very poignant to uh, Melville and might've had something to do with him making this book into, you know, a movie. And while do, trying to do the prison break, uh, Mathilde does notice it, does notice that Gerbier has his photo up and the most, most wanted uh, yeah. <laughs> criminals against the third Reich. So pressure's rising on all of them. Again, like in another throwaway line, we, we, we hear that like, uh, the Baron and all of his men were arrested and executed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, the randomness of the horror of all of this is so profound because, like, Mathilde and Gervier meet in, like, a little cafe. Mm -hmm. And Mathilde is saying, like, the heat's on. Like, you should lay low. And then she leaves. And then, like, right after, there's just a raid of the cafe. Like, literally her no going reason. out one door and then the, the Gestapo coming in the other door. Like... And they're just like, all right, everyone shows your papers. And then smash cut to Gerbier in prison, he, like thick beard. He's been in there for a while. And now we get now we get to the most horrifying scene in this movie. Well, before that, there's one there's a scene where they all well, I guess it's part of it because they all have their their final cigarettes. I was going to say the final cigarette to me was probably the scariest part of this. Movie. Yeah, it's so I want to talk about another scene bereft of almost any sound. Yeah. But it's this big holding cell. There's like 10 or 12 guys who are all shackled to the floor. Gerbier's in there. He's got like about half a pack of cigs. What's left to do at that point? Smoke if you got them. Mm -hmm. And there's this long scene of them tossing the pack of cigarettes around the room and then the lighter. And then the guard comes in and is like, 
hurry up. They're coming for you in a second. We don't want any. We don't want any hassle. Yeah, I don't want any trouble. I don't want them to let you know that I gave you. Six, these guys, basically. like all these guys, are just like the look on all their faces is just so fucking devastating. Like, yeah, because like they all know what's coming. Mm-hmm. They're not being transferred. Yeah, they're going to be taken out into a courtyard and shot. Yeah, and like they all just like it's it's <laughs> once again the the Pee Wee's word of the day here is like methodical. Yeah, and how they all like in an orderly process. Think like finish their cigarettes, get up, and are marched into a courtyard, lined up. But it's like there's like a it's like a firing range basically, and mm-hmm. this is like this is some real sadistic Nazi. Yeah, shit. this is this is the one scene that I remember, and I like it's so fucking horrifying. They go into this, they're like ushered through this door, and they're like, "Where the fuck are we?" And it's like a long, long, long hallway, like a quarter mile long hallway that is just like. Um, at the very far end, you can see like two Nazis, one with like a gun, a machine, a gun, machine gun emplacement, yeah, like a belt yeah. fed machine gun next. And this is just practice. For, like, uh, these assholes are just practicing for Normandy a couple of years later. Yeah, literally. <laughs> so like the, the, the captain tells all the, all the men, he says like, you know, like turn around your, to your backs are facing us. And he said like, we'll give you a five second head start, but if you can make it to the end, uh, we won't kill you until the next batch of guys we have to execute. Which again, it's like the perversity of that. Yeah. And like, okay, here, here's where it gets down to the truly horrifying psychology of all this. Because Gerbier says, like he, like he tells himself, I'm not going to run. Yeah. I'm not going to give them the satisfaction of running because like, you won't get away. Yeah. And even if you make it to the end, they're just going to like, it's going to delay your execution for like a week. Yeah. Like that would be worse. Yeah. <laughs> that truly. would be fucking worse. You're out of cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, like here, here we get we get the line where he says, "If I refuse to die until the bitter end, then I won't." And it's just about like how rationally in every part of your mind you just know that like I'm dead. Like at least just go out on my own terms. Yeah. And then when they start, he like refuses to like he's just standing there after like like him and two other two or three other guys are just standing there, not even bothering to run mm-hmm. as the other guys just make a dash for it. And then the other two guys, the captain one... just starts shooting his his pistol at their feet. And Gerbier, like, again, despite everything that your con- your rational mind tells you, runs. Yeah. Because, you know, like, what else are you going to do? Like, you can't, there's, like, in our programming, we cannot just submit ourselves to death that way. Yeah. Even, even though it just, it goes, it, like, it is, goes against all of our dignity, our humanity, everything. So he makes a run for it, but he's not counting on the fact that Mathilde and Bison have got his ass covered. Yeah. And as soon as he starts running, like, out of nowhere, smoke grenades start exploding, and Mathilde and Resistance comes through for him. They're dropping, like, smoke bombs, so they like, he can't see. They throw a rope down, and he's able to escape. Mm-hmm. Once again, he is able to escape. But once again, it goes back to the perversity of, if he hadn't run, they would have killed him. Yes. It's, 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 a, it's like him doing the irrational thing to run is the only way he's able to make his escape. Yeah. And, like... It would have been like his last thought would have been like, I'm not going to run. And then like if he died, if like Matilde wasn't there, his last thought would have been, I'm not going to run. And he would have ran. And like that would have been the end. And it's like fucked. But this rope comes out of nowhere. And it's very like it reminds me of the ending of Brazil. where <laughs> Robert De Niro saves uh, Jonathan Price. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But um, but real. And they kind of. Matilde gets him out of there, gets him the fuck out of there. They switch cars, then they drive. Uh, they drive him to like a safe house, where he's gonna lay low. 
And then when I talk about the loneliness, he's just alone by himself at this farm. The only thing he has to keep him company are the textbooks of mathematical philosophy by number one big boss, Luc Chardin. Yeah. And he's alone, but big boss eventually comes back to tell him the great news that... Such good news. Our girl, the number one French resistance fighter of all time, Mathilde. Earlier in the movie... Gerbier tells Mathilde that like she's she has impeccable tradecraft in every respect except for this one thing. The one flaw is that she keeps a photo of her daughter in her wallet. Mm-hmm. And if you've got something you care about, you're vulnerable. Big Boss tells them that Mathilde was arrested and she she snitched. Mm-hmm. She snitched because the Gestapo said. Like, we know you're willing to die, but are you willing to have your daughter arrested and sent to a bordello on the Eastern Front? Yeah. <laughs> like, again, you like you, you can't resist. Yeah, you have no choice. There, yeah, like, I mean, what are you going to do? And when when Buffalo comes back, he's... Which, he's like, I can't do it. Yeah. Buffalo's he says, like, I can't I kill won't a woman. let you. I'll kill you before you kill her. And he says, like, please, like, I'll kill any man. <laughs> yeah. But it's not even that just that she's a woman. It's that she's Mathilde. And they're yeah, like... They love her. Yeah, they love her. And he's like, I've done more missions with her than anyone. She's like, you can't do this. Like, And, um, and then Big Boss very calmly explains to her that we have to kill her because it's what she wants us to do. Yeah. And you know what? He's right. He's right. And it's, it's Mathilde, the greatest fighter of the French Resistance, because what... The big boss explains to them is basically like, look, she they have her neck. If she kills herself, if she runs, if she kills herself, if she doesn't cooperate, they're going to like take it out on her daughter because the Gestapo, no matter how long it takes, they never forget. And um, so he's like he tells Buffalo, like, put yourself in her position. What would you want? And then he's like, I would want you guys to kill me. And he's like, do you think that she's any less brave than you any less committed than you and he's like nope and then um the boss is like i'm gonna come too because i want to mm-hmm. see if, he has to yeah if i'm right if if she actually and you know what matilde doesn't run nope. <laughs> it's the exact same it's a repeat of what happened with gerbier but she just makes eye contact with her we then cut to it just it gives us another date february 23rd 1943 when a movie gives you a date that's that specific, especially and in the 1940s. It's, it's not going to be good. <laughs> it's the four of them, once again, tightly packed into a car. They're driving around. They see Mathilde walking down the street, and they hit her in broad daylight. Mm-hmm. She recognizes them. She sees them. She looks at them, and they just like plug her. Like They just shoot her to death in the street yeah. and drive off. Just And then they're just in the car together in silence, that's how the movie ends, but not before telling you that each and every one of them within less than a year from February 23rd, 1943 are all executed. One is beheaded. The other it takes a cyanide pill. The other is just like shot. And then when it gets to Gerbier in the most devastating, oh, it's so beautiful. It just said he, he stopped running. Yeah. He didn't. The next time he didn't run. Yep. Oh, I get chills even oh. thinking about it. And it shows oh. when it shows Luke, it's like Luke was tortured to death. The only name he only gave one name, his own. And then it's like Gerbier, the next time he didn't run. And it's like, fuck. This is fuck one of the me. most just gutting endings of a movie ever. And like 
here's 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 what's so astonishing about it is because like you know when the movie was made and certainly now like given the benefit of hindsight we all know that they try that they won yeah the gaul became he was he was france you know like the resistance Mm -hmm. won they eventually won then they defeated the nazis but like does it make is there any victory in this movie? Is there any victory to be had in this movie? No. Yeah, because like, it's like, I don't know, for me, the thing about this movie that's so like, really crazy to think about is that the bravest people are like the people like, Mathilde will go down in history as like, if she goes down in history at all, as an informer who was killed yeah. by the French resistance. Yeah. Um, Jean-Francois will not go down in history because he just disappeared off the face of the earth. And like, it's like stuff like that where like the echoes of these people who did, who are probably the bravest people in the history of the world are just like, like are, are known if they're known at all as cowards. Yeah. And snakes. Yeah, exactly. And, but the French resistance as a whole is lauded as this, like, like I said, like the most, one of the most heroic enterprises in, in modern history. Mm-hmm. But like the people actually doing it, the dirtiness of the yeah, it's so squalid and horrifying, and like there, there's nothing, there's no heroes in war, really. Yeah, truly. Oh, holy shit! I mean, God, what more is there to say about Jean Pierre Melville? I mean, like other than like, just dive in, watch his movies, watch Le Samurai, Le Doulos. Uh, like I said, I just watched Second Wind. It's like a fucking crime epic. Bob Le Flambeur. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Just one of the coolest directors of all time, mm-hmm. and we just got to give it up to the French. We got to give it up. We got to give them. It to the French and their their movie culture. You know, for me, and I think we've tried to reflect this on the show. For me, it's USA number one, followed number followed closely by France and Japan. Yeah, in terms of like these are the countries whose movie cultures, and then like four, five, six. You know, you can throw in Italy, Russia, the British film industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but you know, for me, like it's it's the Americans, the French, and the Japanese who have like truly i think done the most for cinema yeah absolutely and then you know every the the british they had a great run in the 80s with like tv movies that no one's ever heard ever seen yeah mike lee um what's his name uh fucking dennis potter um you know the singing detective the guy who did um powell pressburger yeah pemdas fan like just all this crazy shit but like yeah i don't know it's I love movies, movie mindset. <laughs> and you know, like I, I guess I guess to, to wrap up to wrap up season one of movie mindset, I would just say like the joy of movies and like what what is movie mindset or like how to how to inculcate this in yourself is like find what you like and then trace their trace the influences of it. And like just be kind of like an be, be, do your own like archaeology of like movies and like there, there's always more to learn there's always more to the stuff you can find out as you sort of kind of uh trace the lineages like, trace the lineage of like and the dna of like all this good shit back to its original source and like find out the people who influence the people that you really love and the movies you really like and like there's you can just discover on your own so much good shit and like like i said i i uh i I really liked hearing from people uh, who listened to the show and finding out how many of these movies, mo- like many people had never seen before. Mm-hmm. This is just a little bit of like access to like, you know, how I watch movies and the movies that matter to me, but like use this as a jumping off point to like find out the, the movies that matter to you. 
Yeah, like the reason that I saw like, you know, Army of Shadows and the Leopard and shit when I was like 13 or something is because I loved the movie Pulp Fiction and I found a website that was like Quentin Tarantino's top 500 favorite movies or something. And it was like had all these fucking movies on it, like pretty much everything we've talked about and like um, a bunch of other like really sick movies and like from all genres. And I was just like, oh, let me check some of these out. And yeah, I don't know. Just look up like the influences of people that you like and like and try try things you wouldn't normally watch too sometimes, you know? Yeah, chal- like and also challenge yourself. You yeah. Know? Like, you know, like commit to watching that three hour movie that seems like kind of a heavy lift. Like I yeah. When it's over, I guarantee you like the reward of it will be will be worth the investment or like going a little bit out of your comfort zone. And again, like I'd like to think that you and I both are are are, are fairly well versed movie heads, mm-hmm. but like I'm speaking for myself here. Like I've not even cracked like a fraction of all the stuff that's out there. Oh, neither have I. Yeah, yeah like there is still so much, so so much film culture to to still experience and discover, and you know, not to get too pretentious or anything, but like in our current moment now, where it really does seem like cinema is a dying art form. You don't have to necessarily make movies to keep movies alive. Yeah. You know, like if, if you continue to, to watch and share and kind of think about art that like, yeah, like that, that movies are, are, are not are, are not dead if you kindle the flame inside yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well put. And also listen to my podcast, Seeking Derangements, which I keep forgetting <laughs> to plug every single episode. <laughs> So subscribe to that on Patreon. I almost forgot again, but... Well, I guess just to, to round things out here today, I'd like to thank uh, you, Hessa. Thank you, Will, for having me on this beautiful journey. I uh, definitely could not have done this without you. You were, my, uh, you were, you were the perfect collaborator for this project. Um, and I'd just like to say, like, just, you know, to give a little preview, uh, this is certainly not the end of Movie Mindset. Mm-hmm. We've already announced we were coming back in October with a, like, a, a, a five-episode run of horror movies. Mm-hmm. But also keep your eyes peeled because I think there's a very good chance we could be just dropping some surprise bonus episodes of Movie Mindset in the not too distant future. Like you never Absolutely. know when that might show up. I think maybe even doing some some episodes on some of the big uh, big current releases this year, like Oppenheimer or Killers yes, of the Flower Barbie. Moon. Barbie. <laughs> Actually, like uh, Catherine had an idea to do Barbie and Oppenheimer as an episode. Oh, that would be so, really yeah, fun. Okay, do that. So yeah, just um. Uh, keep your eyes peeled for some some maybe surprise bonus movie mindset episodes. There will be the official season two of movie mindset probably sometime in 2024. But uh, in October this year, we will be back for uh, uh, Goofy mindset, Goofy scream set <laughs> horror uh, spectacular. I'm looking forward to it. All right. Season one of Movie Mindset in the can. Once again, Hessa, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Will. And thank you, Chris, for editing. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Thank you to uh, Laura June Kirsch for taking the photographs that we, mm-hmm. uh, that we use for the, uh, the art for this. And I guess just on a personal level, I'd like to thank um, my Uncle Peter and my father who uh, you know, really gave me so much movie game. And then also to Ethan, who I realized about halfway through programming season one that, the, that most of these movies are just your taste in movies. <laughs> so, so thank me for th- thanks for thanks for sharing that with me. And like I think that's a that, that, that's a model for you, the listener, as well to to to, to share and evangelize the art that's important to you. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, listener. We'll be back soon. Bye. Bye.